I mentioned this before, but I, I mention it again in light of our topic today, and that is I do not believe that there is a more important theme in the life of the Christian than that of growth in the Lord, and the importance of growing in Christ. And I believe the scriptures support that with passages like 1 Peter 2, 2, where Peter says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 5, when he chastises Christians in that situation who, when the time had come that they should be teachers, they had need that someone teach them again, the very first principles of the oracles of God, and had become such as had need of milk and not of solid food. And he went on to say that milk is for babes and solid food is for those who are of mature age spiritually, that is, those who have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians 3 pointed out that he had not yet attained or laid hold, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the mark for the upward call of the prize of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, as mature as he was at that point in time, being an apostle of Jesus Christ, understood that the growth process was a continual one. And many times, tragically, we see we see what happens when that growth process is not engaged in by, by Christians after they have become Christians. And we see a passage of time, perhaps many years, and yet we are seeing in time, at times in people a, a manifestation of immaturity that uh, is uh, alarming and disappointing and discouraging. I must determine as an individual that I'm not going to be among those who discourage others by my immaturity as a child of God when a time has come when I should be anything but immature. And so growth is absolutely crucial to the Christian existence. And all of us need to be applying ourselves, all of us, to growth because it is, a, it is an unfinished work. And it will never be finished until we draw our last breath or until the Lord comes again. But, thanks be to God, while we are still striving to grow, because of the all-sufficient and all-powerful Word of God, we can reach a point where our joy is full, where our hope is ever-present and keen before our eyes, where the wonderful Christian graces are, are very evident in our lives. And I'm speaking to so many this morning who are in that very category. The wonderful Christian graces are evident in your lives. And yet, even with that, we certainly do not, as Paul said, think that we've apprehended or attained, but we press on. I've said all that as a background to our study today in this final lesson on God's groundwork in Genesis. We have begun the year with the book of beginnings and looking at some very important principles 
the groundwork for which are established in the book of Genesis, the groundwork for God Himself with which we began. In other words, in the beginning, God, and therefore the existence of, of God. The Genesis record affirms the existence of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have seen the key word God that is used several times, ten times in the first chapter of, of Genesis. And also good, the word good, used six times in that first chapter of Genesis. And the very last verse, Genesis 1.31 says, God looked upon everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And we've talked about the groundwork for God's existence, the groundwork for God's goodness in the book of Genesis, some of which is seen in the very creation itself, but beautifully and ultimately and finally seen and most importantly seen in the revelation, not the creation, but the revelation of God to us in revealing His Word to us. And how tragic it is that there are so many who ignore that revelation, who want no part of that revelation. In our Bible class this morning, we shared an article from the newspaper this morning about uh, a humanist group that's meeting at 4 o'clock today here in Chattanooga because they want the association and companionship of fellow atheists and agnostics and humanists. They want that social aspect, but they want none of the spiritual aspect. And so they work very hard to reject what God in His love and mercy has revealed to the pinnacle of His creation, mankind. The ultimate goodness of God is seen in the giving of His only begotten Son, the news of which is set forth in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, what gratitude should flow from hearts who have come to realize and recognize that goodness. And that was another of our principles that we have studied in this brief series, gratitude, the groundwork for gratitude. Where do we see the groundwork for gratitude in Genesis? We see it in chapter 4 with the first incident of recorded worship with Cain and Abel. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith he offered, and we have studied what by faith indicated, that God had revealed to both those men what they should offer, Cain did not comply, Abel did, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. But the sacrifice was to be offered out of deep love and gratitude for God's goodness. And we studied in that groundwork for worship a very important and eternal principle, and that is that God has always specified how He wanted man to worship Him in every dispensation including this, the final dispensation, the Christian dispensation. And that's why we have done what we have done to this point in our worship to God, are continuing to do it in the explanation of the Word of God in our study today in preaching, as we have prayed, as we have sung, as we will partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week as Scripture commands, and give Christians, that is, giving of their means willingly, and lovingly as the scripture dictates. Five avenues of worship, no more, no less. That's what God has specified. And those acts are to be engaged in out of hearts filled overflowing with sincerity and love and gratitude for the one who has revealed those specific acts of worship.
to us by his what? By his grace. That was our last study last Sunday morning, the grace of God. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why did he find grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord? Genesis 6, 9, the next verse says, These are the, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. There's the basis upon which God extended his grace to Noah and the basis upon which he extends his grace to all mankind in every dispensation. It is not the unmerited favor of God without any part for man to play in the process, but it is manifested or given, the grace of God is, to those who will appropriate his grace by what? Obedient faith, as Noah did in building the ark, just as God told him to build it, and as he lived a life of righteousness before God. That principle has never changed, and today God's grace is extended to those who will respond to his grace which has given us this word in obedience to this word so that God can do and will do his part, grace, and man must do his part, faith, obedient faith. And once man has appropriated or accepted the grace of God by obedient faith in believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, in repenting fully of sins, changing his mind about sin and determining to change the sin, it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry, you've got to change the activity itself, and then confessing sweetly that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, once one has been buried in baptism for the forgiveness of those sins, he rises to what? To grow. He rises to grow. He's a babe in Christ as he comes forth from the watery grave, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And he rises, yes, to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4, but that walk is a walk of growth. I've mentioned before, there are really three stages of Christian growth that we need to fully appreciate and seek to attain. The first stage is, please help me. Please help me. I'm a babe in Christ. I've just become a Christian. I need help. I need encouragement. I need to study the Word of God so that I can, what, move to that second stage of Christian growth, and that is, I can help myself. Oh, I still need you, but I don't need you as much as I did before from the standpoint that I've grown because I've fed upon this Word. I've desired the sincere milk of the Word, and I've grown by it, and now I'm better able to stand with God's help and the encouragement of fellow Christians, but I am more mature, and I'm less likely to fall back than I was after I first obeyed the gospel because I have what? I have grown. But as we've said before, tragically, so many think there are only two stages and that that's the final stage of Christian growth. And in so thinking, they deprive themselves of the greatest joy there is in the Christian life because that greatest joy is found in the third and final phase of Christian growth. Let me help you. Let me help you. That's where the real joy is found in considering others better than myself, in reaching out to others and striving to spend my life serving others as well as serving God, helping others and realizing the joy that comes from that kind of growth. This morning we're going to talk about two men, one very briefly, one in a little more detail, who grew and their growth provides a groundwork for growth, the final topic in our series this morning. 
we'll briefly mention Abraham, who was called the father of the faithful. Abraham was called the father of the faithful and the friend of God. And he was indeed an individual who, whose faith was manifested in, in a tremendous way. But it at one time, twice actually, was a little bit of a faltering faith as that faith was growing with God. Because when he first went down into Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, and he took Sarah, his wife, with him there, having heeded the command of God to get out of his country and to go to a land which he knew not, which obviously took faith, there was a famine and he had to go down into Egypt from Canaan. And when he went down there, verse 11 of Genesis 12 says, he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, Sarah later, of course, she would be called his wife, indeed I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Well, why did Abraham feel the need to do that? Why didn't he completely rely upon God to work things out and just simply to tell the truth about, about Sarah? I think we'd have to characterize it as some fear that he exhibited at that point in his walk with God. And then when we come over to Genesis chapter 20, we see that he did the same thing down in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, Genesis 20 verse 2, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king there, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God kept Abimelech from Sarah and preserved the purity of that relationship. So on two occasions, Abraham did not, it seems, exhibit the strong, strongest of faith in trusting God to preserve his life if he simply told the truth. Now to his credit, to his credit as we well know, Abraham obviously grew in his relationship to God, but he was a human being. And he did have fear and concern, and he manifested that fear on those two occasions. And it's somewhat interesting to note that Isaac, his son, over in chapter 26, down in Gerar, did the very same thing that his father had done concerning his wife, Rebekah. Well, we don't know whether or not Abraham's action influenced Isaac or not, but we could assume that perhaps it did, which tells us that Abraham's fear was transferred to some extent later on to his son Isaac. And yet both of these men, both of these men exhibited a very strong faith on an occasion when God told Abraham to offer Isaac his son upon the altar. 
And Abraham had gone all the way to the point of raising the knife, believing, as we read from other passages, that God had the power to restore his son's life, even if he took his life, and he was willing to do that until God stayed his hand. An example of faltering faith on two occasions, fervent faith and solid faith overall. And so we see some growth in Abraham. But I'd like for us to spend a little more time looking at another example of patriarchal growth in the life of Jacob. Because I think it is even more pronounced in terms of Jacob's development than with Abraham in terms of where both men started versus where they, where they ended up. Jacob, the name means supplanter, because he was one who deceived and took away the birthright and the blessing of his brother Esau. Now Esau, Esau was a profane man. Hebrews 12 refers to him as a profane man. He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. When he came in hungry from hunting on one occasion, and Jacob had the, had the mess of pottage there, in effect a bowl of lentils, a bowl of beans, and Esau was so hungry that he wanted them, and Jacob bargained for his birthright, Esau being the oldest, Jacob being the younger, and Esau obviously being the one who received the birthright with the double portion from the father and other blessings that pertain to being the firstborn and having that birthright and that blessing. But Esau, for a bowl of beans, was willing to sell out his birthright to Jacob, a profane person, one who was living for the here and now. Give me something to eat. I don't care about the birthright and the blessing. And Jacob was willing to take it on that basis. But then later on, as Isaac, the father of Esau and Jacob, those twins, as Isaac's eyes were dim and he was preparing to issue that blessing, he called Esau. He called Esau. He was going to still give the, the birthright and the blessing that accompanied it to Esau. But Rebekah overheard the conversation that Isaac had with Esau when he said, you go out and prepare me that, uh, that food that I love so well and bring it in and I'll bless you. And so Rebekah, having overheard the conversation, went to Jacob and said, you bring me the fatted calves and I'll take care of it. I'll prepare it the way Esau's meal would have been prepared. Your father will never know the difference. And he said, well, I'm a smooth man, and Esau's a, a hairy man. She said, that's all right. I'll put the, I'll put the, uh, the hair uh, on your arms from the, the kid, from the goat, and um, he will not know the difference in effect. And they pulled it off. They pulled it off. And so Jacob received that blessing. And Esau was determined once he realized what had happened he begged his father, Isaac, for a blessing, which he did give him somewhat of a blessing, but the birthright and the blessing went to Jacob, the deceiver, the supplanter. And Rebekah was a part of it. Esau then was so angry he determined to kill Jacob. And Rebekah, Rebekah, because of her favoritism for Jacob, and Isaac had favoritism for Esau, obviously it seems, she sent him away so that Esau's anger would be allayed for a period of time, she said, just till, till he gets over this, in effect. 
And as far as we know, she never, there's no record that Rebecca ever saw her son Jacob again in this life. A tragic consequence of all of that plotting and all of that deceiving. But as we follow the life of Jacob, the deceiver and the supplanter, we realize that the promised seed was going to come through Jacob, but that Jacob had some growing that he needed to do personally. And we see that growth in the incident in Genesis chapter 28, for example, where he was at Bethel in his travel and Jacob's ladder. We're very familiar with the account of Jacob's ladder, as it is called. And the, the angels there appearing and the indication of God's uh, renewing here of his promise to Abraham to bless uh, the seed the descendants of Jacob, he renewed that promise there. And the indication of that vision being that God was going to uh, be with him. Jacob awoke from his sleep, verse 16 of chapter 28, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so... He called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. It had been called Luz, L-U-Z, previously. And then Jacob made a vow. We see some growth occurring here. Verse 20 of Genesis 28, Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so he made this vow to God. He is recognizing now more of the presence of God. And he is becoming more dependent upon God. And so he goes to Paden Aram. He meets Rachel there. And he himself, ironically, is deceived by Rachel and Leah's father, Laban. He falls in love with Rachel. He really wants Rachel as his wife. But Laban deceives him and gives him Leah initially. And he has to work another seven years in order to receive Rachel as his wife. So the deceiver is himself deceived here. But then as we continue to follow his journey, which begins for us in Genesis 25, Jacob's journey, and doesn't end till chapter 50 down in Egypt where he ultimately will breathe his last breath. We come to Genesis 32, another pivotal occurrence in the life of Jacob. The angels of God met him. He's on his way back now. He's going to meet Esau for the first time in years, and he is fearful of how Esau is going to react. And here is where Jacob wrestles with a man. Hosea will tell us in Hosea chapter 12 that it was an angel and refers to it as an angel. And it was here that he was told for the first time that his name would no longer be Jacob, the deceiver, but now Israel. Israel, indicating a prince of God. A prince of God. Because he had wrestled with the angel and would have prevailed, and the angel touched his thigh and put it out of joint. And he recognized 
further his dependence upon heavenly things and upon the God of heaven. And he limped away from that incident literally with a fuller recognition of the power of God and of his dependence upon God. Jacob, verse 29 of Genesis 32, asked, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. He was blessed. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Literally, the face of God is the meaning of the word. He says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, or Peniel, variant spelling of it, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. And that limp on his hip was a reminder of his dependence upon God. And so then we see subsequent events where in Shechem, Dinah is raped by one of the Shechemites who then wants to take her as a bride. And Jacob leaves the handling of that matter to his sons. And Simeon and Levi, two of the sons, strike a deal with the Shechemites to deceive them, saying, we'll let her, we'll let her become the wife of Shechem if indeed um, you will all be circumcised. And while they were recovering from that ordeal, they went through and killed every one of them. And Jacob was distressed about it. And he said, I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So after that incident, God appeared to him and said, Arise, go up to Bethel, the house of God. Again, that place where he slept and dreamed that dream. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, we've come to a point in time that's absolutely crucial in the growth process of this man, Jacob, whom we're studying. Genesis 35, verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands. There was still a mixture of idolatry involved in some of the people there. Perhaps through the influence of the Shechemites there in Canaan. And remember Rachel when they left Paden Aram, she stole her father's household items, uh, idols rather, and hid them and sat on them when he came and looked for them. So there was still some mixture of idolatry among some of those people. But now Jacob has reached this point. The deceiver who is now a prince of God says, put them away. Put them away. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. Those earrings weren't just ornamental, but the indication would be they were uh, configured with uh, various uh, deities, perhaps various things that were uh, talismans and charms, that which was uh, utilized in a false worship. They took those earrings and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. He buried them, put them away. 
But notice where this man began and notice where he now is. Not only does he say, put them away, which the indication is he had some knowledge of their presence, obviously, before this time. But now it seems that not only has he seen personally in his life the presence of God and the help of God and the blessing of God, but he has now seen the importance of himself becoming a blessing to others and of being the kind of leader, the kind of patriarch that God truly wanted him to be. He's grown. He's grown. It's a tremendous study in growth to the point that he now says, put them away. He doesn't say, put them in your things. I don't want to see them. I don't want to see them. Take them out of your ears and, and put them away. You can keep them, but I just don't want to see them. No, put them away. Put them away. Because he says, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, where he worshipped there with an altar. I will make an altar there to God, or where he wor who will worship with the altar there to God, who answered, listen to it, who answered me. Here's the God I'm going to worship. The God whom I've come to know more fully now as the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. How important it is for us to come to that same realization to which Jacob came to be able to say, that no matter what the adversity, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the challenge, I am going to worship and serve fully and wholeheartedly the God who has been with me in the way which I have gone because I've grown and matured and I understand and appreciate that no matter what the circumstance may be, God is still with me, and I'm going to still be with God. It is not my intention this morning as I close this lesson to embarrass our good brother, Louis Coffell. What my intention is, is to commend him as an individual who without fanfare and quietly but so faithfully has served the Lord and has grown obviously and whose life demonstrates that growth and that faithfulness. And there are others who've left our presence of whom that same thing could be said and who've gone to be with the faithful of all the ages. And how blessed we've been at White Oak to have known and to have had fellowship with such individuals. May we all determine that we will continue to grow and to emulate those beautiful examples that have been set before us by so many who indeed, who indeed have walked with God in the good times and in the bad. If you have not begun your walk this morning, we plead with you to do that by obedience to the gospel of Christ, believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, 
confessing his sweet name after repenting of every sin and then submitting to a burial in water where not the water but the blood awaits to cleanse you from every sin and to allow you to rise, to walk in newness of life and to grow and to mature. As so many have here in this audience and as many as we've said who've gone from us did and demonstrated so beautifully for us as they walked among us in their walk with God. If you need to come home, we plead with you to do that as a wayward child so that you can once again walk with God as we stand to sing. Will you come?